feeling good? Ready to get into God's word? New series, new series, Second Thessalonians called Divine, Divine Grace. And uh, so we're going to um, look at this word uh, grace and understand it a little bit better. We, um, we talk a lot about grace here, uh, but understanding exactly what it is can be a bit of a challenge. Uh, it's critical to our understanding of our relationship with God. It's critical to our understanding of forgiveness and how we're even to relate to one another. God relates to us in a grace way. We need to relate to one another in the same way. But the challenge is that the word grace, very, very challenging to define. How do you put an actual definition on this particular word if you uh, go down to the original language words in both Hebrew and Greek, the two languages, two primary languages of the Bible, uh, you find it translated in a lot of different ways. Uh, the uh, Greek word in particular is charis and can be translated as gift or gratitude or goodwill or favor. Depends on the context that it's in. Uh, sometimes it can even carry the idea of rejoicing in something, being thankful for it. And from the Greek word charis comes our uh, English word charity, and that, it, that too is another aspect of grace. And so because it just goes out all in a related way, but in so many different directions, it can really defy a definition. Uh, Philip Yancey, in one of the two most impactful books that I've ever read on the topic of grace, Philip Yancey in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, said, I would far rather convey grace than explain it. And another author said something to the effect that it's very hard to define, but you know when you have it and you know when you don't. Uh, Jesus, according to Charles Swindoll, again in the second most impactful book on grace I read, uh, The Grace Awakening, Chuck Swindoll said, Jesus never used the word itself. He just taught it, and equally important, he lived it. Now this is all of uh, great importance to us, understanding this word as we launch into this new series in 2 Thessalonians, because the letter is uh, a study in grace. And uh, the word appears in, it is a very short letter. I think it's 48 verses in total in the three chapters. Uh, the word grace is used four times. It's used uh, in the passage we'll look at today in the opening to the letter. It's used in the uh, salutation at the end of the letter. It's used in a benediction we find in the middle of the letter. And one other occasion we find the four times this word is used. And um, uh, Paul wanted his readers evident, evidently to understand something of grace and understand that this letter, in, in some respects, was a grace-saturated letter with a grace-saturated message. Hopefully coming from a grace-saturated apostle to some grace-saturated readers. Now listen to what some others have said about grace, again, as we seek to understand it. B.B. Warfield said that grace is free, sovereign favor to the ill-deserving how many ill-deserving people here this morning? Just raise your hand if you're ill-deserving. Okay, that's all of us. Matthew Henry, commentator, said, Grace is the free, undeserved goodness and favor of God to mankind. Donald Barnhouse, in seeking to explain it more rather than define it, uh, said this, Love that goes upward is worship. Love that goes outward is affection. And love that stoops is grace. One other author said that it is holy love 
on the move. It is active. And so with that picture in our mind of God stooping, that's grace. God stooped. God bent down to lowly humanity. And God continues to do so. And that's the awesome and amazing thing that we'll see throughout our study of this letter. Now for this week, that's kind of a setup for the entire letter. For this week in the opening verses, we see God's divine grace. That's the title of the series. God's divine grace flowing down from the Lord to us, but then showing itself, giving evidence of itself in in our enduring spirits, in our ability to persevere uh, through anything. And particularly here in the endurance of the Thessalonians. And we're going to see how that is going to kind of lead us down a road where, where we ought to have the same perseverance and the same endurance as a evidence, as an evidence of the grace of God in our own lives. All right, that was a long, for me, very long introduction. They're always a little longer when we start a series. But let's read the first four verses and then we'll um, start working through this together. Second Thessalonians 1.1. 1, 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Let's pray together. Father, we are um, ill-deserving people, ill-deserving of this place, of this time, of the printed word in our hands, of the salvation that you offer. We're ill-deserving of every blessing we've received. We're ill-deserving of the privilege and honor of, of gathering today. And yet, Father, you have blessed us in an extraordinary way by your grace. And I pray, Father, that we would not squander this moment, that we would not waste this opportunity that we would lean in right now to hear what you have to say to us and we would open ourselves up, Father, to the Spirit's testimony, the Spirit's conviction in our lives. And this we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. All right, let's get after this. Um, My life must show, you'll see in the notes there, my life must show evidence of God's grace. Now, um, This is a letter from the apostle to a church that is filled with people who had already committed their lives to Christ. So uh, this is a message to believers who are already recipients of uh, God's grace in their lives. And if you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, and listen, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you should have the evidence of God's grace in your life. You should have it. Now, if you're not a believer here today, and and there's every chance that there are people here who have not yet committed their lives to Jesus Christ, then yes, you have evidence of God's grace in your life. You may not recognize it, but you do. You have common grace that's coming in your life. There are blessings that you have in your life that you do not recognize as coming from the Lord, but they do. 
And what I want for you and what others in this room want for you, if you are not yet a believer, more than anything else, is that you would experience God's special grace in the forgiveness of sins and the salvation that Jesus Christ offers you in the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life and the fellowship that God gives us with each other in the hope of eternity. That's all God's grace gifts to us. And if you don't have that yet, then I pray before the end of this message, you would give your life to Jesus Christ and receive the grace that he has for you. But this, this message is, is to believers. And so he sets this up. He's writing a letter. So it starts with this greeting. The senders are fronted in this form of writing. Paul, Silvanus, that's Silas, by the way, and Timothy, those are the senders, the recipients to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, identifying that they are in Christ. Verse 2, here it is, grace, grace to you. The first thing I want to say to you is that God's grace would be poured out in your life. And the result of that, grace and peace, is that you're going to have peace in your life as a result. Peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we could say it this way, because of grace, they have peace with God through the reconciliation that Jesus Christ provided by his death and resurrection. They have the forgiveness of sins. The curse of death has been erased on, uh, for them. And that's grace's starting point in every one of our lives, bringing us into fellowship with our God. But then, the grace is no less needed throughout the entirety of our lives, correct? The grace of God is no less needed. I need it every single day to walk with my God. And so my life must be in an ongoing way, not just because I'm saved, but because I'm breathing and, and living and walking about today. I have to be showing the grace of God in my life today. And so here it is. My life must show evidence of God's grace, first of all, as I endure hardship and challenges. Now, this is the situation that the Thessalonian believers found themselves in right off the hop. So, again, beginning of a series, start of a letter. We need a little history and geography here. It's like between Sundays, you forget who I am. It's like, and I realize I took two Sundays away from here, but we're going to get into a little history and geography right now. Yes, that's what I was looking for. Map number one here. So this is the geography. I'm going to tie in the history with the whole thing. This is Paul's second missionary journey. These slides, by the way, come from a website called BibleTalk.tv. And um, on Paul's second missionary journey, and in fact, if you can look at a map and turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter, uh, Acts chapter 15. Uh, Acts is actually uh, Luke volume 2. Acts chapter 15. And uh, this, is, this is the uh, historical background now for what we're going to read in the letter, the, sec the second letter to the Thessalonians. Now in Acts chapter 15, right at the end of 15, Paul chose Silas, this is verse 40, departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of God. So he's leaving on his second journey. Then in uh, chapter 16, Paul, Silas, they pick up Timothy along the way and they become this evangelistic missionary, church planting team, and they're going to go around Asia Minor. You see where it says Galatia there and kind of just all in that area. Uh, that's modern day Turkey or uh, Asia Minor. They're going to 
preach the gospel. They're going to plant churches in all of these areas. And then in in, uh, verse 6 of Acts 16, as they're going around this whole area, Paul has this vision. It's spoken of in verse 9. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come on over to Macedonia and help us. Bring the, bring the gospel over here. And, and this is, this is going to be, if Paul crosses the Aegean Sea and goes into Macedonia, this is now the gospel's first foray into Europe. Up until this time, the gospel was limited. It was still just in, in the Middle East. It hadn't yet crossed over into Europe. So this is a pretty, pretty important moment in history right here. As Paul considers, we'll just do the close-up map now, considers a crossing from Troas over into Macedonia, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, all in Macedonia, Athens and Corinth down in Greece. And of course then he, he makes that journey, Acts 16 uh, verse 11. He sails from Troas and he, he ends up in uh, the leading city of Macedonia, of Philippi. And in Philippi, he gets a quick convert, and then a fuss is made out of the whole thing, and Paul ends up in prison. We know that whole story. We don't have time to go into all of that. And at the end of the day, he's asked to leave town. I mean, after there's an earthquake and all kinds of things happen that are pretty miraculous, he's asked to leave town. Chapter 17, then, Paul and Silas are where? What does it say? They're in Thessalonica now. See, so they make their way from Philippi. They're still in Macedonia. They go to Thessalonica. That's the, who the letter was written to. We don't have time to read all nine verses there, but that sets the whole thing up. And in Thessalonica, things don't go well at all. He's there maybe for a short, a short period of time, weeks, maybe months. But at the end of the day, he is attacked by a mob and he is chased out of town. So he makes his way to the next city uh, away from Thessalonica as he makes his way south. And he goes to Berea, and this is Acts 17, 10 through 15. And the people there were also stirred up. They got stirred up there, by the way, because people from Thessalonica went to Berea knowing that Paul had gone there. And they stirred up the crowds, and there was a big problem there as well. And so Paul had to leave Berea, but Timothy and Silas remained behind. So Paul crossed over into Greece, Acts 17, 16 to 34. He's in Athens. He has a few opportunities in Athens, but largely unsuccessful, a few converts. And so he makes his way, Acts 18, to Corinth. And Silas and Timothy leave Berea, and they make their way to join him there. And it was in Corinth that Paul now has a change in strategy. Up to this time, his whole strategy was to go to the synagogues because he was preaching the Jewish Messiah. Go to the synagogue, start there, preach the Old Testament, show them their Messiah, preach Jesus. But that's where all the trouble was starting. And so in Corinth, he just decides, you know what, from now on, I'm just going to go to the Gentiles. I'm just going to preach to them. And we're going to tell them about Jesus Christ. And so he ends up staying in Corinth for 18 months. Now, why that is all so important for you to understand the geography and the history of all of that is because it's while he's in Corinth that he writes the letters to the Thessalonians. He writes the first one, and then a few months later, he writes the second letter. And all of this, for those who love the dates and numbers on all of this, this is all happening around A.D. 49 to 51 in the space of about two and a half, three years. A.D. 49 to 51. Now, that's so important because First and Second Thessalonians are among the earliest, earliest letters, maybe the two earliest letters that Paul wrote. 
And he wrote them here from Corinth, and he's writing them, listen now, about 18 to 20 years after the crucifixion and resurrection. So understand the timeline. In the same amount of time that we've been a church, so for those of you who have been around since the very beginning, just imagine that at the very beginning of harvest, that was like around the time of the crucifixion and resurrection, all the events of that. And now where we are today, I mean, you can remember back that far and the whole thing seems like just that amount of time. And, that, and that's why he's in Corinth now preaching the gospel and writing these letters back to Thessalonica. And when he leaves Corinth and he writes back to them again, he leaves Corinth and he's writing back to the Corinthians now. I'm just trying to set this whole thing up. He says that when he came to them initially, you remember when I first came to you? This is now in in his letter to the Corinthians. He says this, I came to you at the time in weakness. This is 1 Corinthians 2, 3. I came in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. In other words, he's saying to them, when I came to you, I wasn't in the best place emotionally and mentally. I was feeling pretty beat down by the time I got to Corinth. And the reason for that is because all I had faced in the months leading up to me getting to Corinth was, I just faced so much persecution, so much opposition. I'd been in jail. There were people that wanted to kill me. I'd been chased out of town. There were riots and mobs. I had seen very little success up to that point, a convert here, a convert there, but nothing substantive. I was weak. I was, I was fearful. I was trembling. And all of that to say, as he begins to write this second letter to the Thessalonians about enduring in the midst of what they're facing, he knows what he's talking about. He, he, he gets it. He's writing out of his own experiences about his own enduring of hardship. And what he says to them is this. Look at verse 4. Therefore, we ourselves boast of you. We, Timothy, Silas, and myself, we boast about you in the churches of our God. For your steadfastness, this is that word we've looked at before for endurance. This is the hupomene. This is the remaining under. Okay, there's a hard thing happening to me, but I'm choosing to stay under this because God's working. Boasting about you in the churches of our God for your steadfastness and your faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring, essentially a synonym for hupomene. So remarkable is their faith. So remarkable is their love. And we're going to talk about the faith and love in a moment. That Paul can boast about this to others. I saw what God was doing in Thessalonica. And when I got to Berea, I talked about the Thessalonians. And when I got to Athens, I talked about the Thessalonians. And when I got to Corinth, I talked about the Thessalonians. I just kept boasting about you because the pressure and persecution and affliction and hardships were so difficult. And you were enduring through all of it. So I'd stand up in church in front of these people and I'd tell them, you ought to see the Thessalonians. Those people love each other. Those people have love for others. Those people, their faith is so strong. It's off the charts. And it's not at all easy given their circumstances. You should see the Thessalonians. Now he's not boasting, because it is boasting, but he's not boasting in a prideful sort of way. 
He's not, he's not, he's not pumping the Thessalonians' tires here. He's pumping God's tires. This isn't, this isn't like, this isn't like parents who post about their kids' achievements. Post-boast about their kids' achievements on Facebook, right? Look how awesome my kids are, which is really, look how awesome I am as a parent. Because my kid is awesome. Isn't that what it is? This, this isn't that at all. This is a means of giving glory to God. And parents, by the way, if your kids are awesome, that is not your doing. Correct? It is the grace of God. It is the grace of God to you if your kids are awesome. And so he's giving glory to God in all of this. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 8, uh, verses 1 to 5, I think we have these verses up on the screen. He says of the Macedonians. Remember, the Macedonians are the, are the Philippians and the Thessalonians and, and, and the Bereans. That's, the, that's who they are. We want you to know, brothers, he's talking to the Corinthians now. He's boasting about the Macedonians, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction... Exactly what we're seeing in Acts, exactly what we're seeing in Thessalonians. Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Next slide. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. These Thessalonians are something, aren't they? Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace as well. You ought to be just like the Macedonians. You should be in Corinth exactly like the people in Thessalonica. It's an act of grace. God is the one we're boasting about. He's the one who's doing this great thing. And this, this, this sustaining, this, this endurance, was just, it, it wasn't just knuckling under. It's, it's, not, it's not just making it through as best I can, but it's, but it's lifting your head and it's thriving in the midst of the affliction. Thriving before the Lord, thriving before the people of God and before those who do not know the Lord. I'm not just going to survive this. I'm going to lift my head before the Lord through it. And I'm going to come out the other side of it looking more like Jesus Christ. Having been a great recipient of his grace. And specifically, that flourishing before the Lord, that thriving before the Lord in the midst of affliction, that's going to play out in a couple of very specific ways in my life. First, it's going to play out with a growing faith in Christ. A growing faith in Christ. Paul says, verse 3, we ought always to give thanks to God for you. We feel 
a righteous obligation to thank God because we know you don't have this in you yourself. This is the grace of God in your life. He gets the glory. So we feel a righteous obligation to thank God. Again, he's not pumping the Thessalonians' tires. He's pumping God's tires right here because all of this is the result of God's grace. He goes on to say, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers and sisters, Okay, that's just, that's just translation politics right there. You can just put that down. That's just English translation politics. The Greek word there is adelphoi. It means siblings. It's generic. It means brothers and sisters. All right? Everybody okay with that? Nobody bolting for the door? And all the women said, Amen. brothers and sisters. Amen. We ought always to give thanks. That was a whole other message I just threw in there. Bonus, very fast. You might have missed it. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers and sisters, as is right. It's just the right thing to do because your faith is growing abundantly. Not, not, not the doctrinal belief faith. Okay, that's a different kind of faith, you know, the statement of faith. This is the personal confidence. This is, this is trust in God faith unqualified trust in Jesus Christ. And notice, they have this confidence, this trust, and it's growing, look in the text, it's growing abundantly. And the way Paul writes it here, it's, it's emphasized, the growth is emphasized. This is extraordinary growth. It's actually, the, the word growth here is actually an agricultural term. It's an illustration that Paul is using. And, and what this means is that there's the perfect amount of sun, there's the perfect amount of water, there's the perfect amount of fertilizer, and it's all come together in this bumper crop of faith. And when you trust God that much, when, you have, when, you're, when your silos are full, and you've just brought in the biggest harvest ever, and it's all faith, it's all confidence, it's all trust in God, when you have that much faith, it really doesn't matter what happens to you, does it? Doesn't matter what circumstance comes your way. Doesn't matter what losses you might uh, suffer through. No matter what happens to you, you know you're going to be fine because you have Jesus. You have his grace. Whatever setback you face, whatever hardship, whatever trial, whatever your lot in life is, no matter how long it lasts, no matter how intense it is, it's irrelevant. Because I have abundant faith in God. I have everything I need to make it through this. I have it by the grace of God. Now here, here's the thing. Even, even good Christians can struggle here. So, so don't think less of yourself if you're sitting here going, you know what, I really struggle with this. Don't think you're somehow less of a believer here. We all struggle with this at times. Good Christians can struggle right here because rather than exercising faith, we can let a number of other things crush our faith. Keep it from growing abundantly. To go back to the agricultural illustration, despite the sun and, and the watering and the fertilizer, sometimes we can allow weeds to grow up amongst the plant that can choke out the plant. So I wrote four of these down. I don't have them for the screen. 
But let me give these uh, to you. Uh, Four weeds that choke growth. The first one is this. Rather than exercising faith, we let circumstances crush us. Because we get our eyes on the, on the circumstance itself rather than on the Lord. We're looking at what's happening around us rather than looking to what God is doing. So we can let circumstances crush us. Or, or secondly, we have a sense of entitlement. That's a weed that grows up and chokes our faith. We have a sense of entitlement. Somehow I think that I deserve a pain-free life. Somehow I think that through hard work and effort, or maybe not even that, that, that I should just have a smooth ride through life. And a sense of entitlement speaks right to this issue of grace because we've already admitted that we are the unentitled. That everything we have that's good in our life is the result of God's grace. And if we have that starting point, I deserve nothing. Then this, this weed of, of, of entitlement will never get a chance to grow out, up and choke out our faith. Here's a third one. A third weed is, is emotions. We let our emotions control us. Now God made us as emotional beings and being emotional is awesome. Having emotions is awesome. To be able to weep with people, to be able to laugh with people, to be able to be righteously angry over things. Our emotions are awesome. Part of who God made us to be. They should never control us and never lead us. Ever. And if we find ourselves in a place where the weed of emotion is crushing our faith, where the, where the difficulties of life are just causing us to be so emotionally engaged that we can't make a rational decision, that's where we get back to God's word to see what he said about it and believe that despite our emotions. Or we get trusted counselors in our life who love Jesus and are completely objective, who can help us cut through the emotion. But otherwise, that, that emotionalism, that, that allowing emotions to control us, to lead us, that's going to choke out this, this growing faith. And fourth, I wrote this one down. This might not even be all of them. But just listening to the voices of people around us, listening to the voice of this world, and allowing others to influence us where we should be influenced solely by the Word of God. How do I get faith? If I've pulled those weeds, how do I get this faith growing in my life? Like a plant, it needs cultivation, it needs water, it it needs time to grow, it needs the fertilizer, it needs the good soil. So it grows over time with the right cultivation and care, with pruning and with tending. Faith grows in the soil of... Do you like this? I got another one here, seven of these. Seeing God work in your own life. Just take note of what God is doing. Look what he did. Rehearse what he's already done for you. Secondly, look at what God's doing in someone else's life. Ask them their story. Look what God did there. And just reminding ourselves of these things, that's going to help our faith to grow. How about knowledge of the word? Are you spending time in the word of God? How about, how about number four is, is worship? 
Just what we did here earlier this morning and to to worship the Lord, that's an act of grace. That's helping us grow in our faith, rehearsing the truths that we just sang back to the Lord. Number five, prayer and seeing answers to prayer. Number six, in our service to others, taking the grace that God has given to us and dispensing that to others through our service. And seven, just being involved and engaged in the community of the church and all of these become the fertile soil for God's gracious work to happen in us where our faith is increasing in Him. Do you have a growing faith in Christ? Now that's the vertical focus, okay? That's the, that's the me and God part. And then the second thing that Paul talks about here is on the horizontal plane. This is the you and me relationships when he expresses his gratitude that they also have an increasing love for others. Notice what he says. This is the end of verse 3 now. And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. What's really cool about this is, and when you talk about seeing the answers to prayer, you pray a thing, you see the answer to prayer, that lifts your faith. That's exactly what's going on here as Paul writes this. In fact, back in the first letter, that he wrote to them in 1 Thessalonians 3.12, he, he actually, he wrote this, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. In other words, Paul had prayed for them that their love would actually increase and abound. And in the, in the second letter, he's saying to them, hey, I'm hearing that your faith and your love are really abounding and growing. That's awesome. That's an answer to prayer. They were abounding in love for one another in the church and outside of it. They were loving the people around them. And love, as you and I should know, love is the defining characteristic of the followers of Jesus Christ. We are to love God, vertical, and love people, horizontal. That flows out of that conversation that that young man had with Jesus back in the Gospels. Matthew 22 talks about it. He came, he said, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus said, it's to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbors yourself. These two things, he said, are the summary of everything God has written. It's, it's the whole package. If you love God and love others, you've got it all. And Jesus would later say this. This is in John 13, 34 and 35. He said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. And here's the example, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, here's the implication, and it's powerful. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's that's heavy. Because this command to love, this defining characteristic of who we are as the followers of Jesus Christ, has this incredible implication for our mission in the world. If people don't see that we love each other, if people don't see that we love them, it doesn't matter what we say. In fact, in your notes, just jot down 1 Corinthians 13, because that's the whole point of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Do you have an increasing love for others? Now, there are some people that are easy to love. And I can isolate myself. Pastor Roger talked about this a little bit last week in his message. I can isolate myself, primary among them. I really do love myself. So hanging out with me isn't hard, right? That was the point Pastor Roger made last week. 
But as I increase the circle, as I make it wider and wider and include more and more people in that circle, it becomes more difficult to love everyone. We become challenged here. And this is the challenge for us. An increasing love for others is evidence of the grace of God in my life. That's the point we're making. John Chrysostom Chrysostom said this. He calls this out. And he suggested that some of us as Christians will say this. I do love everyone. I do love everyone. But just not in that way. Right? I do love everyone, just not in that way. And, and he goes on to say, the truth is then, you don't really love at all. Your life will have no evidence of the grace of God if you don't love. You good to go after this a little bit? Everybody feeling a little bit uncomfortable? Perfect. So the problem is the people that I'm being asked to love. That's really what we're saying. It's the people we're being asked to love. Who is it that you find, you don't need to answer this out loud because they might be in the room. (laughs) Who is it? Just think about it right now. Who is it that you find difficult to love? Every one of us has got somebody. Who is it? that you find difficult to love? Is it your ex? Is it your immigrant neighbor? Is it your gay coworker? Is it those mean old liberals? They're just ruining our country. These liberals, those lefties. Is it someone who hurts you? Is it, is it someone who, who is advanced beyond you? Jesus unconditionally loved the people he came into contact with. Unconditionally. That's grace. That's grace. Jesus unconditionally poured out his grace and love toward those who accused him of being a devil. Could you imagine any insult worse for the God of the universe than you're the devil? He loved them. He loved those who called him a false teacher. He loved those who condemned him to death. He loved those who savagely beat him. He loved those who hammered the nails through his wrists. You say, well, that's Jesus. You know, he's perfect. He didn't have any sin. So I guess that was like easier for him. I'm me. I'm I'm a human being. I have a sin nature. Yes, you do. So do I. The cool thing is, Paul's writing this letter to the Thessalonians, not to Jesus. 
Paul's writing his letter and commending the Thessalonians for their love for one another. So it's, listen, possible. We, we, can't, we can't just push this off and, and expect that, that, that we can use the excuse that that was Jesus and we're us. We're reading a letter to the Thessalonians who are commended for their increasing love. Did they love the officials who were imprisoning them, who were beating them, who were seizing their property, who were dividing their families? Who broke up their churches? Who stole their livelihoods? They loved. And their love was increasing. We have to get this one right. No one's going to be happy about a pretty little church on George Street. I don't care. The number one thing people need to know about this church in the city of Barrie in the county of Simcoe is that we love. That's it. And I love that we're giving it a shot here. I believe many of you are very good at this. I don't mean to sound harsh about it, but some of us need a wake-up call. I'm encouraged by what I see in you. I'm, I'm sure also that we need this reminder. With all of our political statements and rantings about this or that and drawing up lines between us and other people and the way we go about it and the words that we speak while we're doing it, is so less than godly, so far from Christ-likeness, and so, so far removed from increasing love. Yes, I understand there are ideological divides. Yes, I get that we disagree with people on the other side of the political spectrum, just to use one example. But do you still love them? And do your words and attitudes and actions actually reflect that? Yes, I love them, but just not in that way. Hmm. That's not going to cut it. See, if Christians, we've been called to this radically different way of living that no other faith system in the world has been called upon to live in the manner in which we're seeking to live. That's why this is such a challenge. That's why we're told to, to count the cost of following Jesus, because this is it. In fact, do you want to you hear what one man, a, not a Christian at all, you'll, you'll know his name as soon as I share it, not a Christian at all, you want to hear what he said about this, about us? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Mahatma Gandhi a Hindu, but studied widely in other religions. He knew. He recognized two very important things about Christianity when he said this, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. See, see Gandhi recognized some things like from, from a theological perspective, just him reading the Bible and understanding things about Jesus. He recognized some really solid things. He recognized the uniqueness of Jesus Christ, the radical nature of his call, the unconditional love that he lived. And, and he understood from the scriptures that his followers were to live in the exact same way. Gandhi got all of that right. 
But in Gandhi's experience, Christians had fallen far short of that to the point that it would lead him to utterly reject Christianity. Now, what I'm grateful for is this. Apparently, the Thessalonian Christians were like their Christ. The only question is, are we? Are we like our Christ? And as you're thinking about that for yourself, remember that the Thessalonians were facing intense persecution and were being commended here for their remarkable growth in faith and in love in the midst of that. In other words, the, the losses, the oppression that they were facing for their faith in Christ was not driving them to be bitter or angry or, or to turn their back on Christ or to hate anyone or to seek vengeance or vindication. They weren't looking for any of that. They loved in response to hardship. They loved in response to persecution. That's remarkable. But that's Jesus. That's, that's what it's like when you have Jesus in your heart and in your life. Sinclair Ferguson said it this way. It's going to help us wrap this up. Grace, grace is not a thing. Come back to that thing. How do we define it? Grace is not a thing. It's not a substance that can be measured or a commodity be, to be distributed. It is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. In essence, it is Jesus himself. Grace is Jesus. It's, and see, that's, that's where it all begins to make sense for us because when you start to think about who Jesus is, you begin to think about our God and his limitlessness and his infinite nature and, and, and the transcendence of our God. And you, you realize how God himself, despite the fact that we have this awesome book that tells us about him, you realize how undefinable God is. That he is a mystery that we are to pursue throughout our, the entirety of our lives to be what he is, to receive what he has given to us. And so we're going to spend all of these weeks in Second Thessalonians talking about his divine grace in an effort to understand him and to understand how we ought to be. Seven weeks talking about our Jesus. Does this sound good? All right, so let's, to, to wrap this up, maybe we could do this. Maybe you could just set aside your Bibles and your notes and everything and just stand with me. And um, we're going to take the outline and put it together in a single statement here. And let's uh, read this statement together. I would only have you read it if you believe this and you want this for yourself. So let's say this together. My life... Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace toward us. You are the God of grace. And thank you for demonstrating incredible love toward us and sending your son, Jesus Christ, who embodies that grace. So God, we've heard a, a, a very hard word here today, a challenging word for each one of us. And, and Father, so often this is true out of the scripture. I just can't imagine there isn't a person here who doesn't have some person in their life who's hard to love or whose faith does not need increasing 
who could not pull a few weeds, who could not cultivate the ground a little better. So, Father, in this moment right here, in the conclusion of our time this morning, I pray that there would be a sense all over this room that your Holy Spirit would be moving in a way that there would be all kinds of commitments being made, maybe hundreds of commitments being made in this moment to have an increasing faith, an increasing love, an enduring spirit, greater evidence of your grace in our lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.